It has been nine years since the meme-generating HODL post on the Bitcoin Talk forum. And reading it again, it's interesting because it expresses so many of the same sentiments that we heard in the GameStop drama of 2021. The idea that you're a bad trader and you're just going to HODL or hold, you're posting drunk, your girlfriend slash wife slash significant other is out possibly cheating on you. It's all there. And this was nine years ago. And owning it too. You know, that's the other thing is embracing it. And I wonder if holding the asset you're just discussing that you're obsessed with or very bullish on, if this is sort of a counterbalance to these kind of embarrassing or unfortunate details of your life? Like, is, is the asset hope in this model or something? Hmm, that's an interesting. Oh, you just got really deep on me. I see. Yeah, maybe. And it's like uh, the state of affairs is bleak, but I have hope in this asset. Or it's, it's even more cynical. It's like, I got nothing else to lose. Everything else is crap. Even my relationship is crap. So let's just ape into this and see what happens. I'm not sure. Maybe it's both. I'm not sure. There's definitely a theme. <laughs> I've heard the term market nihilism. Maybe this also touches on that. Yeah, I guess that kind of applies here, doesn't it? <laughs> it's actually it's actually kind of a funny read. We should put a link in the show notes. But it's a family podcast, so we can't read it. Well, yeah. <laughs> not without some censoring. It is very funny, though, that uh, nine years ago this week, term hodling was born. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on December 22nd, 2023. Merry Christmas, everybody. And I'm here remotely, as always, with Ho, ho, ho. It's me, Chris. Welcome back, everybody. Glad you're here. On this week's show, we're going to discuss Stacker News, a Reddit clone that upvotes via Lightning and their new OFAC compliance program. As Bitcoin transaction costs have risen, there has been renewed interest in the Bitcoin Liquid sidechain. Though activity on Liquid remains low, there are bounties out to enhance Liquid interoperability with Bitcoin products. Ronin Dojo, the backend for Samurai Wallet, has removed both BISC and Bitcoin not support. Kind of interesting if you're a Samurai wallet user. Why are they doing that? In economics, we have the US mainstream news declaring inflation is dead, the Fed is successful, while simultaneously the Federal Reserve has turned on a dime and is suddenly signaling that they might cut rates in 2023, as the market has predicted, but they still can't justify exactly why. And so I think this speaks to an extended period of economic uncertainty. We don't really know what's driving financial markets. And so that leads them vulnerable to volatility, panic, etc. And then in Bitcoin education, Bitcoin Optech has their year in review, which is a compilation of all of the posts of the past year, all of Bitcoin development. And we will discuss that, what the year in Bitcoin development has been, where it's going, where there are controversies, what we're interested in. And then we have some holiday boosts. And that's our show. It is too. Here, let me get the uh, tassel and all the decorations out of the way. And let's start with Stacker News. I'm a big fan of Stacker News. We mentioned it over a year ago on the show. And it seems to be part of a trend that started really in summer, kind of when the ETF news picked up, but really seems like it shifted into high gear as of October, I would say. We've seen it in all these different permutations. Uh, Unchained Capital announcing they were no longer doing BTC back collateral loans, right? Albi having to do limitations and invite only. We just kind of see every week one or two more Bitcoin companies announce they're pulling out of the app store or announce they're no longer offering this service or announce they're going self-custody only. Some of it's been okay, but a lot of us were wondering, well, what about Stacker News? Because what seems to be the fundamental problem is if you hold a balance on behalf of your users, you're going to be a target of the U.S. legal system. And, you know, Stacker News has very small balances, right? I mean, we're talking dollars, pennies, very low balances. Like my Stacker News balance is 6,000 sats. 
you know, I had a couple of posts that got upvoted and now I just kind of go around the site and spread those stats back around. And I mean, it's not like anybody's using this for money laundering here, but because it Stacker News addresses this, even because it's even though it's tiny amounts, even though it's tiny, tiny amounts, it just doesn't matter. Their legal team tells them not only is this a problem, but they better get their act together and they better start, I guess, not sanctioning, but um, I guess blocking would be a better term. Preventing is the term they use. Users from certain countries from being able to even transact with Stacker News's wallet at all. They just have to outright block it just because, you know, these are the countries the U.S. legal system isn't comfortable with. And I think it's part of a trend of increasing financial control, increasing government surveillance overreach. The justification for these controls is always terrorism. It's always fear-based. It's always, we need to keep you safe so that bad people don't do bad things to you. And therefore the government needs more tools to do that. And we've talked a lot on the show of how there's no real factual evidence for financial surveillance keeping the general citizens of a country safe. And instead, there is a large amount of evidence that it creates inequality, that it suppresses free speech and political engagement. But there is another aspect to this financial control, sorry for a brief detour, and that has to do with government funding and, oddly enough, payroll taxes, which is the kind of largest mechanism of the U.S. government's uh, smoothing its income and kind of hiding its taxation from regressive consumption taxes that people feel every time they make a transaction to a sort of uh, quiet tax deduction that your employer takes out of your paycheck every two weeks. And then at the end of the year, when it's tax season, you often get a tax rebate because they've taken too much out. And so everyone feels happy about paying taxes. Does this sound like a stretch? Have I, have I pulled it too far? I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I hadn't taken it there, but I actually... I guess it kind of helps understand why structurally these systems are in place and why they go after these things. You know, that gives me some insight there. I think Stacker News, I mean, they're in a tough spot. If you're a U.S. company, you're just going to be in a tough spot here. They are, and I don't mean to, I don't like the way this sounds, but I, they are doing it the right way if you have to do this. And what I mean by that is all their compliance stuff is open source. They're putting it all up on GitHub. So whatever they're doing for wallet blocking or filtering based on your IP or whatever it is they end up having to do that their legal team says you just got to do, we will be able to at least audit that on GitHub. So it's at least not a complete black box as to how these restrictions will work. And if Bitcoiners and Bitcoin companies are going to be forced to do this kind of stuff, again, I'm not condoning it. I'm not okay with it. But I think this should be at least the way it's done is open source it all. Right. Because it gives people the option to either understand how the blocking filtering is being done or in an extreme case to fork the project and run their own version, which most people will not do, but is a nice option. I think it's just nice for auditing too. Like if at some point somebody wanted to do a little research and figure out how widespread all of this is and what the impact is and all that, having this information open source makes that a lot more doable. And then perhaps that begins to give the tools for somebody to build the argument against this kind of stuff. And this is happening across the board in the Bitcoin financial app ecosystem because you spoke with Moritz from Albi on your Office Hours podcast. Great podcast, terrible name. And Albi is implementing restrictions around withdrawals, around balances, around signing up new users. And we generally see that when 
a business feels it's under threat of some kind of financial enforcement action. You know, Dad, do you think maybe it's, um, you know, everything we've just rattled off is kind of, except for Unchained, is kind of newer generation Bitcoin businesses? Because you know who's not having a problem right now is Strike. Strike does this. Cash App does this. This, you know, holds balances for users. Strike is expanding and growing. They just announced Fountain 1.0 just came out. Built-in Strike integration now. So, like, you don't even have to, like, temporarily hold your sats in Strike. You can just do a smash buy and put them right in the fountain into your wallet and then start boosting all real nice and easy. And they're not getting the crackdown. Well, because Strike did full KYC AML compliance from the get-go. That's the difference. That's why I don't have a Strike account, because you have to scan your US driver's license or foreign ID or something to onboard into their system. And so the issue is that Albi and Stacker News, because these are just sort of things on the internet, I mean, they're financial, but they're not kyc They ended up holding a balance without going through any kind of identification process. Right, exactly. And that detour into payroll was just trying to highlight that KYC and AML, it's really about money laundering. I mean, it's about social control. It's about the general centralization of power, but it's about tax reporting and trying to figure out if middle-class people are underreporting their taxes. The wealthy have the financial infrastructure to determine their tax burden, to choose how much taxes to pay, to structure their finances such that they can minimize their tax burden. But the working and middle classes in the United States do not have the funds to buy those solutions. And so all of this AML, KYC, etc. On the one hand, you have these sort of negative social control elements, but on the other hand, you just have the incentives of the U.S. government to get more financial information to increase the amount of taxes it can gather from the most tax-paying segment of the population, which is sort of the bottom 95% economically. What a fantastic win-win for them, because they can make a strong argument about preventing terrorism and money laundering and making sure that everybody who owes their fair share pays their fair share by having this information, right? And then by having all of this information, they can find, you know, every person who they want that isn't necessarily paying their their taxes absolutely correctly or maybe got five, six hundred dollars or ten thousand dollars or whatever it might be from this person over here at some point for something they didn't report that like stuff that won't make a tiny bit of difference, won't move the needle even, you know, a tiny, tiny bit for the federal government, but could make the difference in somebody's year. Uh, they'll go after for it. And we almost we almost almost here in the States in 2024, we almost had to report any transaction six hundred dollars or more from any kind of Cash App or Venmo or PayPal transaction. And what was interesting about that debate was that a former, I believe, IRS director actually chimed in and said, listen, the IRS doesn't have the ability to process this data. You're going to break the agency by inundating it with huge amounts of basically useless data. And, And so that was an interesting example of the kind of bureaucrats and technocrats who run these systems saying, hold on a second, there is a cost to this mass surveillance internally, because now we have to deal with all this data. And we don't know, and we, th- we suspect it's probably not actually that valuable for tax collection. So that was a, a refreshing rebuttal. Of course, that's the former director, not the current administration. Unfortunately, they only delayed it by a year. Uh, they plan to have it in effect next year, at least according to uh, taxadvocate.irs.gov on December 27th. They said they're going to postpone it. I'm not sure, though. Either way, it makes me feel like the intent has been signaled. I really don't do very many like Venmo transactions or Cash App transactions. So this isn't a kind of thing that would affect me, but it does feel like a signal of we need even more data. It kind of goes to our general thesis that the central planners of all these various agencies and the economy and all this kind of 
it seems like their solution is always, well, let's just do more of what we've been doing. It isn't that we've been doing it wrong. It's that we haven't had enough information. We haven't been able to control enough of the individual components. We haven't been able to control the players enough to really set the stage for success. But if we could just get a little more control, then we can solve economic problems. We can solve equality problems in the economy. We can keep inflation pegged at 2%, exactly where we want it dialed in to steal just enough from everybody. We can manage all these things if we just have more data. And same with this, we can extract more, just enough tax revenue so we can grow our way out of debt. We just need to extract a little more tax revenue because the solution to the unbelievable amount of debt and bills that the United States government now owes is growth. Every politician in the run for president right now will tell you the solution to our debt problem is just economic growth. And economic growth is another word for more revenue. And revenue, as dad just pointed out, for the federal government comes from taxes. And so if they can find more revenue to extract from the people, then they can grow their way out of it. And the article I shared about the history and politics of U.S. payroll taxes points out that one of the U.S. political parties in their manifesto, they state that they think that one of the largest determinants of growth and distribution of wealth in the economy is the mechanics of taxation. So this is actually, at its core, a serious political issue. And so I don't think that we're going to see kind of technocratic data solutions to growth. I think that these are political issues. And so, uh, yeah, that's just something to keep in mind. Just to underscore what you're saying, not to really dwell on it, but I think the political chaos and um, engineering that we see going on right now really would prevent any kind of actual growth. I think we're at a stage currently with the current leadership with, you know, and I'm on both sides of both parties in the states that we wouldn't really see much growth. We just saw that nuclear project fail in Idaho. AI is already being regulated before it even can, it can produce reliable answers to basic questions. We're already regulating the individual recipe of how models are created. We're not regulating the output and the end results and what the product can and cannot do. We're regulating how you can make the product before there was even a successful AI product out there that's actually sustainable. You look at what they're doing to Bitcoin. If Bitcoin were fully embraced, it could be the source of an economic boom for the United States. It could be a tremendous boom for the energy market. It could be a, it could be a substantial contributor to the adoption of renewable energy, which could be a massive jobs program. But in all three cases, which I just gave you, which are all just from the last few months, the current political climate is such that it kills all of these things. It attacks all of these things. It sabotages all of these things and immediately builds moats around them. And these moats belong to giant, slow-moving, monopolistic corporations that can't get things done. And so we just stagnate and we, we close pro we close things down and we just don't, yeah, we don't see power plants. We don't see things adopted properly. We see things like Bitcoin, which are obviously beneficial, killed in the bed or in the cradle. You know, it's like, whew, how, how, how are we going to have a, how are we going to grow our way out of that? Well, one thing that is also growing is on-chain fees. No kidding. <laughs> nice one. Yeah. Yeah. I was looking at a chart, dad and ordinals, you know, it really kind of starts with ordinals, but then I think, I think the, the action just picks up too with the ETF hype, the havening hype. I think there's just a lot of contributors. Right. I mean, there was that temporary fee lull a few weeks ago where you could get something in for 40 to 60 sats per V-byte, but now it looks like a low priority transaction is 113 sats. That's pricey. That's generally seven bucks a transaction, something around there. I mean, to be honest with you, I almost never do low priority unless it's something I truly don't really care about. So 
Uh, right now, like a medium priority transaction fee is 124 sats, it's, which is about almost seven and a half bucks, getting to eight bucks, depending on you know how you're feeling. Uh, and this is good, by the way, depending on when you check on this. Like if you check during a busy uh, market day, easily, easily double. And when on-chain fees rise, people get interested in lower fee options. And sometimes that is altcoins. By the way, I think the bull market is starting because I got a message from a friend who is not into Bitcoin, not into crypto, but he's been bonking. His head or? No, one of those Shiba Inu inspired no altcoins. And he was bonking it. Everybody's aping into Solana right now. That's what you're supposed to be aping into Solana. Solana is the hotness right now. Can you believe that? Can you believe that that rickety piece of crap is the hotness right now? <laughs> and the Ethereum community is just so offended. It's seething. Hilarious. Seething. Yeah. It turns out, I think, it, it, what's interesting, just as a side note, it just shows you that they're a little bit concerned about the fundamental value of Ethereum. Meanwhile, we're over here at being Bitcoin land just kind of laughing. But you got a good point, Dan. I think the bull run last time, back in the good old days of a couple of years ago, that led to fees that at times were like 50 bucks for medium priority. It was really bad. And we saw the Lightning Network all of a sudden become the new hotness. It had been around for years and it had its you know moment, everybody thought. And then no adoption really happened. It just sort of stagnated. But then during that last bull run, those fees got high. And man, all of a sudden, everybody was talking Lightning. And we're going to see that again in the Bitcoin Optech this week because a huge amount of this year's development was around Lightning and Lightning adjacent changes to the Bitcoin code base. This is my thesis. Is it it's cyclical. It takes time for the money to get in place, for the developers to get in place, for the projects to get started, for the code to get developed. And so it starts in the bull run, but the results we're seeing are right now. And if you look back at 2023 and we'll get there, it was a huge year for Lightning. In fact, the Lightning Network has grown. I had a stat in office hours. It's something like a thousand percent in the last two years. So it's it's massive as measured by River too. Like channel capacities are way up. Like the average channel capacity a couple of years ago was like two Bitcoin. And now the average channel capacity is between six and eight Bitcoin. Goodness, there must be some Wumbo channels driving that average up because that is a huge amount of Bitcoin to lock in a hot wallet. River is probably one of them. <laughs> River is probably one of them. I think it really is a traditional story. And I would imagine you probably agree it's incentives, right? It's incentives that are driving this behavior. And so is your high level view that high fees this cycle may drive more interest in the liquid sidechain? I do have that theory. I I think this will be, 2024 will be a great year for Liquid. And I know how stupid that sounds because I know Liquid's been around for a while. Yes, I'm I'm aware of the custody model, but Liquid has, besides low fees and good privacy characteristics, Liquid has a feature that is so phenomenally above and beyond what Lightning can offer that it's it's a clear, clear product differentiator. And to me, that is essentially the same UI as Bitcoin. If you know how to use a Bitcoin wallet and you know how to send Bitcoin, you can use Liquid. You don't have to set up a node. You don't have to have Lightning channels. You don't have to learn about liquidity and inbound and outbound channels. You don't have to understand that you lock sats up into a channel and that the sats can be on either end of the channel. None of that. You don't have to learn any of that. You just use the same paradigms you're used to with Bitcoin software. And that makes it approachable to anybody who has a Bitcoin wallet today. And it means you don't have to go through all the hassle of having a Lightning node and all of that. Yes, there are trade-offs, which we will get to. But in a high-fee environment, when people need to move their Bitcoin or, more importantly, I would say, consolidate their UTXOs because they realize they're about to get robbed to death in fees if they try to spend their $1 DCA, Liquid looks really 
attractive. And while I'm on a roll, I did a little AB. I went through the process of standing up a brand new Lightning node. I funded it with my own liquidity. I put millions of sats on there. I paid the fees to open up the channels and rebalance and all of that crap. And it took me two nights and it took me 10 minutes to move the funds. And I never had to pay like all the fees to get my initial liquidity set up and all the fees to establish the channels. I could do it all in liquid in five, 10 minutes from lightning to liquid back to Bitcoin for almost nothing. The interaction was no new paradigm I had to learn. It was very straightforward. If you look at just the workflow aspect of it and the high fees that come up and people will be looking for an alternative, I think Liquid's going to be a nice product fit. I, I know there's security trade-offs, but there's also security trade-offs leaving your keys on Coinbase or an Albi or whatever it might be. The history of this podcast, part of it is your Bitcoin dad being really interested in sidechains and just having his heart broken time and time again. And me being like, I don't think this is the time to talk about Liquid. I, I think people are talking about Lightning. I know you like Liquid, Dad, but I just don't know if it's now's the time. <laughs> now here I'm the guy like, let's talk about Liquid. <laughs> I acknowledge that. So what is Liquid? Liquid is actually a product or it's built on a project called Elements D. And Elements D is a fork of Bitcoin Core that is kept pretty up to date with recent Bitcoin Core releases, but it adds additional features, including confidential transactions and an arbitrary block time. So because the Liquid sidechain is a trusted model, instead of using proof of work to find the next value block, you trust the 15 Liquid Federation block signers to sign the next block every minute. Liquid has a one-minute blockchain and only include valid transactions. And you can validate these transactions yourself by running a Elements D node or a Liquid node locally. So you can see if the Liquid functionaries are violating the protocol rules, but you can't do anything about it because you can trustlessly peg into Liquid. So you can send Bitcoin into Liquid and receive Liquid Bitcoin on the Liquid sidechain. Yeah, and that functionally works as you just have a Bitcoin address you send Bitcoin to. And that is... It's a 11 of 15 multisig address on the Bitcoin blockchain. And the liquid functionaries control that address. And so you can send Bitcoin into that address and then take the transaction and do some math magic with your liquid node to like redeem those coins on the liquid side. But you can't get out. You have to go through a service or a liquid functionary to get out. You basically have to sell your liquid tokens to get Bitcoin again. And so at least on the way out, you're likely to pay some sort of fee, like a, a foreign exchange fee or something. It's quite low, though. Like in my experience, it's like 0.01% or something. So what are the benefits of Liquid? Well, once you're on Liquid, you have fast block times, you have confidential transactions. So you can see a transaction, but the amounts are blinded. It's not clear, you know, it, it offers pretty good privacy, I think, in that respect. It also kind of breaks your on-chain ties as well. Right, because the Bitcoin just goes into the liquid multisig and then... You know, when you sell it, you might get Bitcoin, probably not out of the multisig, but probably Bitcoin from another address. And someone is just sort of arbitraging liquid and on-chain Bitcoin. So I think that privacy-wise, if that arbitrager is not keeping very strict records, you may have gotten some privacy there. So that might be breaking your on-chain graph, which is cool. But 
what is the, I mean, the trade-off is obviously less security than on-chain Bitcoin, but probably arguably more security than holding your funds on Coinbase or a centralized exchange. But what is the trade-off? I would say it's probably the lack of activity on Liquid. I've been watching the last 10 Liquid blocks on mempool.space and each block has a maximum of three transactions or five. Well, most most blocks only have one or two transactions. So there's just not a lot of activity here. And Liquid has been going for five years now. And it had a jump in interest in 2020, where the amount of Bitcoin on Liquid went from essentially zero to around uh, 2,500 Bitcoin. It jumped up in 2022 to almost 3,500, dipped down, and now it seems to be trending up again. Oh, we just got a big Liquid block, eight transactions. So like, there's just not a lot of activity here. And I think that the trade-offs of Liquid, the custody trade-offs, the friction of sort of buying and selling on is still pretty high and you know, maybe people haven't figured out how to do that yet. But I imagine with prolonged high transaction fees, this may become more interesting for Bitcoin users. I think what appeals to me about it, and again, I'm, I say all this in kind of like rational trade-off. Like I look at the tools that are available to me today to move small amounts of Bitcoin around and in a, in a high, on a high in a high fee environment. And we're also kind of theorizing that if we did see a bull run for a bit or post halving, we see something, uh, fees will probably go up for a while and they may be, we may be in a sustained high fee environment. So when you start looking at, okay, well, so what's available literally right now today, because I've got a chunk of UTXOs I need to move around. Liquid starts to look like one of the few viable options. Um, and things like bolts.exchange and uh, sideswap.io make it so simple to peg in and peg out. So it is a permission system, much like if you're on Coinbase and you want to withdraw, technically Coinbase can say, nah, you can't have that right now. So this could also happen to you on Liquid. It's a 11 of 15, right? So, eh, I mean, it's, it's unlikely, right? It's, it's the, the risk is more dis- diffused, but it probably is a little more likely that something like maybe swap.io is having issues or is over capacity. And so maybe at some point the risk is you can't peg out at this particular time when you want to or need to. You know, maybe on-chain fees drop and everybody pegs out at once and all of a sudden Swap.io can't handle it. Right. And the real risk is that because there's thin liquidity on Liquid and between the Liquid BTC pair, there could be moments where you take a massive loss on selling Liquid BTC. And so you'd have to hodl through those moments and just hope that Liquid recovers and liquidity recovers because Liquid Bitcoin are not Bitcoin. They're tokens on a separate side chain that because of sort of a promise-ish and some arbitrage opportunities, people think you can redeem for Bitcoin at around the same price as Bitcoin. And so far, I mean, that is my experience, is it's it's very, very, very cheap. I mean, much cheaper than the on-chain fees to peg in and peg out. Right. And there's some cool tooling here. I mean, especially now with more and more Lightning integration, too. You can send a Lightning transaction so quickly, and liquid blocks are relatively fast as they come out. So you can kind of atomically swap in there with less sort of settlement time and therefore uncertainty and risk as those two transactions clear. And we're seeing a couple of different developers create apps that, so you go to a lightning payment terminal and you make a lightning payment, but you're actually using your liquid Bitcoin and it's just doing that swap on the fly, sending the sats and that stuff is going to make it, I think, it's going to bring up the user base to it. We should definitely link to that because that sounds really cool. Yeah, okay, I'll try to find it. It uh, And Albi also put a bounty out to try to get liquid support in directly to Albi, which I think would be genius. But, you know, you were about to mention something that I think is also 
unique is because there's these companies that obviously are behind Liquid for their own benefit to move funds around privately and whatnot. They have their own commercial interest to be running this network. They've also, though, created some pretty decent tooling around this stuff, like the green wallet and the Jade hardware wallet. Absolutely. And I'm a huge fan of the Jade hardware wallet. I don't think it provides you physical protection because it's, I think, some sort of cheap ESP board inside. So if someone grabs your Jade wallet, you can expect them to pull out those private keys in a few hours, for sure. That said, I think that the majority of the attacks on Bitcoin wallets are automated, wide-scale, digital hacking attacks. So the Jade does do air-gapped. It is an air-gapped system. It can connect to a computer via Bluetooth or a USB-C cable. And so I think that kind of provides you probably good enough security for the most common attack, which is your the computer you're using Bitcoin on or your phone is compromised and a hot wallet is swept. But it is a very nifty device. It's pretty cheap. I think you can buy one for $35 or sometimes they're on sale at $25. So in terms of a functional hardware wallet, the Blockstream Jade is very cheap. And I think the Jade also works pretty well with Blockstream's hosted Lightning Node solution called Greenlight. And they're doing something kind of interesting there because Greenlight is sort of a, not a fully custodied node. Like they're not running the entire node for you. You're actually keeping your keys locally. And so when you want the node to be active, you have to kind of connect your Blockstream green wallet or your Jade hardware wallet to your Greenlight node. And now it can send and receive, but the actual hosting provider doesn't have access to your private keys. And so that's an interesting development in the hosted Lightning node model because other options like Voltage, I mean, the keys are on that node. You know, if they get a court order, they can extract the keys from that node or they can steal the keys off of that node if they want. So this is an interesting model. And I think that's another part of the Blockstream story because Blockstream is a technology company and they have produced some technology. They've done work on confidential transactions. Liquid is a product they produced. They also are doing some pretty interesting financial engineering with their Blockstream mining notes, which are, again, released on Liquid. And these are basically, it's a financial instrument that allows a miner to sell the Bitcoin in a trusted way produced by certain amounts of hash rate for cash before the Bitcoin is produced. And so it's a way for non-miners to speculate on the sort of Bitcoin price and mining rewards and all on liquid, all on a sort of Bitcoin native sidechain, which I think is really interesting. Something I haven't dug into, but I also know that Lightning Node operators are using liquid to bring liquidity in at low prices and sort of do, they'll prepay somehow and then they can add the liquidity on demand using liquid. Again, if, if maybe if somebody out there in the audience knows, boost in and explain it to me like I'm a dummy because I haven't really followed it yet. But I'm not sitting here saying you should stack a bunch of sats on liquid. Uh, I think the workflow that I might advise somebody if they were to ask for my advice would be you could withdraw from your KYC exchange or from your lightning uh, wherever wallet or whatever it might be or from RoboSats. And you could stack midterm in a liquid wallet to a certain number that you are comfortable with. And then you would peg out to cold storage. And the reason why I would do that, uh, unless you have, I mean, this is each to each their own, but the reason why I would do that would be to do some UTXO consolidation and to get the privacy benefits of the chain swap. You know, I don't think I would hodl long term 
for five, 10 years, like my, you know, I wouldn't put my savings on liquid, but you know, it might be a cheap way for families to move sats. Well, liquid Bitcoin between each other. Um, and then when they peg out when it's something that's actually worth saving, that's a, I think that could be a, a, very, a very viable use case for your dads and moms out there that have kids. You know, you could have little, little Jimmy and, and Jill liquid wallets. And when they do their chores, you could, they get their QR code scanned and you send them some liquid Bitcoin. And when little Jill is stacked enough, you, you have the experience of teaching her how to sweep a tour sparrow and cold card. And just a bit of review on UTXOs, unspent transaction outputs are Bitcoin. This is what Bitcoin are on chain. And you can think of them as coins. And these coins can only be spent by the correct private key. And so the private key is held in your wallet or on your hardware signing device, like a cold card or a Blockstream Jade hardware wallet or something like that, a Trezor. So in this mental model, the UTXO set, which lives on every Bitcoin node, is like a bag of coins. And so I have the whole UTXO set on my node. Chris has it on his node. But we can only spend the coins that we have a private key for. And that's interesting, right? But when we spend a coin, we basically send these coins. Well, we don't really send them, but we we make a transaction. And a miner now takes all the coins we're spending and they melt them down into new coins, into new UTXOs that we want to send somewhere, maybe to someone else's wallet or to another address in our wallet, because let's say we have a bunch of small coins, we want to melt them down into a Bitcoin. But every time the miner does this sort of reforging of a UTXO or destroying UTXOs and creating a new UTXO, it's like they're clipping the coin and taking a fee. They're taking a fee out of that transaction. And the thing is, because all UTXO transactions require block space, if your UTXO is really small, and I, I saw this in a ancient coinage museum, you know, this idea that gold is not fungible because, you know, a big fat gold coin is worth too much. Well, you can make tiny gold coins. I've seen gold coins the size of a pinky nail, like just really small. And so if, if you have a super small UTXO, you might not actually be able to spend it. The miner might just take the whole UTXO in fees when you try to spend it. And so that's the problem with super small UTXOs as the price of Bitcoin increases and the on-chain fees increase. That very small UTXO might not be functionally spendable because when the miner takes their cut, they've taken the entire UTXO. And this is a pretty hard concept to grasp, but this is a user flow problem because if you're doing some kind of dollar cost averaging, you buy $10 a Bitcoin a day or something like that, and then you want to take it off of the exchange, you don't actually want to send a $10 on-chain Bitcoin transaction when fees are $7. You just paid a 70% transaction fee on that UTXO. Maybe even realistically 100 bucks, because like I said, during the last bull run, we saw $50 fees for medium priority. And so if you're trying to send 100 bucks and you have a $50 on-chain fee, it's getting tough when you just when you think about how this could go if if we see the on-chain fees grow over the next 5-10 years, the amounts you're willing to send are going to be I mean, like if you're moving a billion dollars and you have to pay a $50 fee, no big deal. If you're moving a hundred bucks and you have to pay a $50 fee, that's a big deal. I kind of describe it as when you come into Bitcoin, I think it's natural to think the fees are based on the amount you're transferring because in most day-to-day life in the fiat system, with a few exceptions, that's how fees work. It's, it's based on the amount you're transacting. But in Bitcoin, I like to think of it more as in the amount of space I'm using, the, the amount of data I'm using. You're charged for the amount of data you're using, not the amount of value you're transferring. And every UTXO 
as kind of a minimum size in data. And that's why lots of small UTXOs become hard to use. And so consolidating them in periods of low fees or using tools like Liquid, like these sort of swaps we're describing, is it used to be a power user activity, but I think that everyone's going to need to figure out how to do this so they don't get hurt by transaction fees in the future. I think we saw a lot of people DCA. I think a lot of people have adopted that. And depending on how you do it, you could just you know, stack it if you're comfortable. You know, you stack somewhere for uh, on some exchange, I guess, and then you move that. But see, this is where Liquid starts to have a good market fit because, you know, storing on Liquid is a risk because there's 15 key holders, of which 11 of which need to really kind of screw you. Those are better odds than just one company, one private company. If you got to stack and hodl somewhere and you can't do it in a lightning channel, perhaps Liquid is a viable market alternative. And I think that as Liquid grows in popularity, if this continues through the high fees of the bull market, the distributed regulatory arbitrage security model of having 15 block signers scattered throughout the world in different entities is going to be tested because the lack of activity and interest and profile of Liquid has made this custodied, federated model viable. But if you have OFAC knocking on your door, if you have FinCEN knocking on your door, we'll see if this security model actually works. And that's why holding large balances on liquid is probably entails some risk long term. Yeah, those people could get their door knocked on. They are all around the world. They're not just in one country, but it's still there could be a lot of pressure put on them from governments around the world. Who knows? Who knows? You know, so far, they haven't even grasped the concept that there are layer twos. I mean, that's clear by watching all of the different congressional and Senate testimonies and everything that gets put out by the different Congress critters and even representatives in different countries like they they're they barely don't even really quite quite grasp layer one. They don't. And there's just completely no awareness. that There's lightning or liquid or anything like that. That's just beyond them. And, and liquid technically, you know, I don't know. Is is it really a layer two? I, I It's it's even more abstract. It's it's going to be even harder for them to wrap their head around. Shall we touch on Ronin Dojo? Yeah, I miss this. What is going on here? Well, Ronin Dojo is the server backend for Samurai Wallet, which is a mobile only Bitcoin wallet on chain with a focus on privacy. It integrates the Samurai Whirlpool coin join technology that can use either the Samurai coordinator server or your own local coordinating server to do continuous coin joins with your Samurai wallet UTXOs. There was some controversy around the launch of Luke Dasher's Ocean Pool, a new Bitcoin mining pool that has some interesting features. But because that mining pool uses Bitcoin Knots, which is Luke's FreeBSD-based implementation of Bitcoin consensus, it's not Bitcoin D, it's not the sort of major Bitcoin node implementation. It's Luke's version of that. This broke some Samurai transactions because some of their transactions use the Bitcoin op return field, which is a messaging field in the Bitcoin transaction to put some data there that helps coordinate the transaction. And I don't think this broke CoinJoin. I think it broke maybe Stonewall transactions, which is sort of a two or three party kind of small CoinJoin transaction. It's just an interesting tool for uh, breaking deterministic links on chain and to sort of invalidate 
validate the common input ownership heuristic that Chainalysis uses for most of their assumptions. But this doesn't work on Bitcoin knots because Luke has a limit on the size of an op return field, which is different than the limit in Bitcoin Core. And so Ronin Dojo has removed support for Bitcoin knots, and they're basically declaring war on Luke because, you know, Luke's consensus rules are a bit different than Bitcoin D's, and their technology doesn't work with Luke's rules. They have also removed BISC support. So BISC is a decentralized exchange I've talked about on the show. It's pretty cool. You can buy and sell Bitcoin peer to peer. That said, I mean, you can, you know, there's there's scary stuff with BISC in the sense that because you can buy Bitcoin for cash or postal order and sort of, you know, send people cash in an envelope and they can send you Bitcoin, BISC has gotten some attention from U.S. law enforcement. And I have heard stories of people trading on BISC and having legal trouble because the person they were trading with was involved in some illegal activity. And now you sent the money or you gave the money or something. And now you're uh, involved in their crime somehow. And perhaps you end up in jail. And that's very scary. Um, I don't think it's uh, fair or in any way reasonable. But those are stories that go around. And that has worried me in the past as someone who has used BISC. But one notable thing about BISC is that it is just very hard to use. And it's very hard to connect BISC to your local Bitcoin node. And I think Samurai wallet developers have recognized this and just removed BISC support because they don't want to deal with connecting their backend to BISC because it's just a terrible experience as a developer and as a user. So I don't think it's a stance against BISC or anything like that. I think it's just on a technical level, BISC is a piece of software that needs a lot of love and uh, and maybe a complete refactor because it's an old Java project at this point. And there are there are better ways to code things than Java these days, in my opinion. Yes, I'm not a big BISC fan, but I like having it as an option for people. Even, what's his name? The wizard guy? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wisp list is behind mempool.space as well. I'm horrible with names, so you know me. You know me. Right. But I know who you're talking about. Right. The guy with the hat. I mean, even he has talked about how he approached the BISC DAO, the sort of people behind BISC. And of course, BISC has a color coin, an altcoin maybe associated with it that they use to sort of kind of fund the project, kind of incentivize development. You can buy it if you trade a lot on BISC and you have lower transaction fees. You know, I, I don't know. But he tried to convince them to integrate a mobile first Rust app into their stack, you know, because that would increase usage because everyone's on their phone and running an old Java app on your computer that's going to hold Bitcoin is, is kind of a rough experience, especially when it doesn't connect to a Bitcoin D node very well. And they uh, they rejected that. They 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 wanted to just keep, you know, the old stack that is a bit crusty around the edges. And I think this was attributed to the incentives of their BISC color coin. So no project is perfect. There are warts all around, but I think <laughs> BISC is still an option. I mean, there is no KYC on BISC. How would you even KYC? It's just not, a, not possible on BISC. It's a decentralized peer-to-peer marketplace. And there are fees associated with it. You're not going to get the best price buying or selling. There's Maybe there's usually a premium. So I think maybe selling on BISC because you're selling with privacy. You know, you can kind of charge a higher price maybe. But, you know, it's pretty pretty hard to use. But I think it's a great option. It's a cool thing to have. And, uh, you know, I mean, I just wish they would solve some of these issues like having an old crufty Java app. You know, you could do better than that. And the fact that it's so unstable connecting it to your local Bitcoin D. And so it's just easier to connect to other BIS nodes via Tor and download 
uh, like block filters. I mean, block filters give you some privacy for your transactions, but it would be nicer to just do it all locally. So unfortunately, BISC uh, doesn't do that too well. Yeah, fair enough. Well, why don't we transition and talk a little bit about the good old state of the economy, which has been just an unusually ponderous thing this entire year. All of 2023, I think we've had competing narratives that a recession is just around the corner and the next bull run is just around the corner. And one of the things I like to do for my Coda Radio podcast is I kind of keep an eye on the tech sector economic news. This is a it's 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 like it's like the it's like the Bitcoin before there was Bitcoin in terms of price indicator for the stock market, because a lot of a lot of the old the old folks on in, in on Wall Street still think of tech stocks as risky. And so they're it's interesting to watch them because they're often leading where the market's going to go. Or if the market has to, you know, if all of a sudden value is what the market's all about, you'll, if anybody's if anybody's going to demonstrate value, they have to do layoffs. And then you'll see like Amazon and Meta and Apple and Google and Microsoft, just all of them in one month announced tens of thousands of layoffs. And you can see that coming by watching this financial analysis for the tech sector. And so that's why I watch it for Coda Radio. But one of the things that has just been blowing my mind is like never before, because I've been doing this for 10 years, like never in my life have I seen guest A comes on with narrative A and guest B comes on with narrative B and they are just diametrically opposed. Like one of them is doom and gloom. Everything's about to crash. And the next one is like, we're, we're soft landing. We've already landed. We're here. Let's go. It's go time, everybody. And you just, it's over and over. And it's been all year, dad. It's been all year. And you shared this CBS article with me with a a fun jingle that explains that inflation has been slayed by the Fed just in time for holidays. And it kind of doesn't quite understand what inflation means because inflation is the rate of price increases. It's not the overall price level. So because we had an inflationary impulse over the past three years, prices are up. It would take significant economic contraction to bring them down, but the increase in prices is slowing. So if you haven't gotten a whole bunch of salary increases over the past three years, I would say roughly 15% salary increase year on year, which is a lot. I don't think anyone I know has gotten that. Then prices are still much higher for you than they were even last year or two years ago. That's why it seems like uh, a slowdown, at least. Uh, some people are calling it, you know, a uh, recession and discretionary spending, which is an interesting one because that's that's been a theory of mine since the Budweiser boycott. Also, still today, Disney is having extremely low attendance. I, some of that is politically motivated, no doubt. But I also think a lot of it is people are looking for cheaper things. So, the, you know, the first thing is they, they, they don't cut out the beer. Instead of buying the Budweiser, now they're buying the Keystone Light, right? Then the next thing that comes is they start cutting out the Keystone Light, but just a little bit, right? Like, that's how you start seeing it. You, 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 you don't go to Disney this year, right? So maybe you still get Christmas presents, but we didn't get to go to Disney this year. Yeah, you can't cut much more than Keystone Light. I mean, yeah. that's what you drink in college, right? Maybe nat- <laughs> Natty Ice is slightly cheaper, but at that oh. point, you know, just just quit drinking, right? This CBS piece, which is video-based, link in the notes, um, it starts with the proclamation that inflation is back down to 3%, so prices are better, everything's better. And then it spends a good portion of the video 
pontificating about how the last bit of uh, inflation, getting it back to 2% is going to be real easy. The Fed doesn't think it's going to be a challenge at all, that it's a slade and that uh, we're, we're headed towards 2% and we're going to land there nice and softly. And then they bring on an expert who just backs all that up. <laughs> like, yeah, they did it. Uh, and it feels it feels a lot like election season messaging to me. And also it feels like potentially, and this is me being cynical, dad, but it feels like getting ahead of a recession. So you can, so the Fed could say, look, we backed off back in December. We took, we stopped taking dramatic actions back in December. In fact, we, we, we paused our rate hikes three months ago. Like it's been great. It's not us. We've been nothing but great. It's the economy just fell apart. It just, it just fell apart. So I think the theme here is mixed messages because Q3 corporate earnings were up over 3%, which year on year, you know, that would be like 12% year on year. That's, that's pretty high. At the same time, the pretty flawed measure of the labor market in the U.S., the, uh, I think it's U1 or, or U2 unemployment is uh, pretty tight. At the same time, we see layoffs in the tech sector. DocuSign is trying to sell itself. That's not a good sign. That's a huge company that could be doing quite a lot of layoffs. Hasbro just laid off a thousand workers before Christmas. It's pretty dim news for a toy company. Target just announced their sales are down 4.2% compared to third quarter of last year. Right. And since consumption is 70% of the economy, that that is sort of a, a warning sign right there. Walmart also announced sales are slipping of even essential items and food. Bloomberg had an article about urban Chinese youths moving back to the countryside to farm. I mean, that's terrible. That's a terrible sign. That's a, that is definitely a bear signal. <laughs> You know, there's a lot of mixed messages here. And in the midst of this, there was an interesting pivot from the Fed because at the beginning of December, Jay Powell was talking about how rates would remain higher for longer. Yeah, it's just too early to even discuss rate yeah. cuts. But then I think on the 19th, they sort of indicated, actually, you know, we're, we're not going to cut yet, but we're looking at it for 2023. And Jay Powell was asked a question about, well, what, what has changed exactly? Because the stock market is up, labor markets are tight. I mean, your measures of financial conditions indicate easing financial conditions. So what's changed? And Jay Powell gave a word salad response, couldn't really explain it. And I think that there's a lot going on here. So on the one hand, we have to acknowledge that the Federal Reserve is a political organization. There are, I think, 12 Federal Reserve governors that vote on monetary policy changes. And if you start to have dissent, then this indicates uh, a lack of uh, credibility from the Fed chairman, Jay Powell. And so there's some speculation that some of the more recent appointees who were appointed by the current White House administration are agitating for lower rates. And it's probably politically motivated because a president going into an election during a recession or before a recession uh, generally doesn't survive that election contest. And so there's every incentive short term to loosen monetary policy, attempt to stimulate financial markets, create a wealth effect and uh, stay in office. And this is kind of what the Austrians describe as the malincentives of monetary policy, because it's invariably captured by the political apparatus and results in sort of periodic periods of inflation around elections. I think another issue is just that the Federal Reserve, uh, as, has, as was revealed by a former chairman in a speech a few years ago at the Brookings Institute, does not have a functional model of inflation. 
there's not a good sort of universal society level model of inflation or theory of how inflation works. Because if you are an Austrian and you just look at the money supply, well, money supply growth, base money growth doesn't always translate into consumer prices. So what's going on there? And I think part of this is that you know, there's this realization, maybe, that the Fed does not actually control the monetary system. The monetary system isn't this unitary apparatus. It's not like a car, and the Fed funds rate is the speedometer, and the Fed sets the speedometer, and therefore everything matches that and, and works harmoniously. I think a, a better model is that the monetary system is like a series of oceans and rivers and ponds and swamps, and the Fed funds rate is a very large lake somewhere, but it drains into the Pacific Ocean, which is the global euro dollar market, which is further subdivided and sort of inefficiently and weirdly connected to other bodies of liquidity. And this is a huge kind of unknowable complex system that uh, essentially central banks have chosen to ignore because it is too complex to fathom, too complex to control. And by acknowledging its existence, you also acknowledge your impotence to control it and to affect the real economy. And I think once you acknowledge that, then people or markets or investors stop caring so much about the interest rates that you can control. And so there's a lot of marketing and moral suasion and job owning. You know, these are all terms for the Fed trying to sort of psychologically control investors and markets through their actions, their press releases, etc. Right. I mean, just hinting that we might see a couple rate cuts in 2024 led the market to get all frothy. Just hinting at it. You know, we're going to because that what that tells the market is that, well, they're done raising rates. If that was even the source of that frothiness, it could have been something else entirely. We just don't know. Oh, I, I think I think you can kind of see it every time there's kind of a dovish statement by Powell. The, you know, people start spending that it's it's just degen behavior. It, it it's it happens every time. Um, I mean, there's other factors always as well. There's things you know, like the day after things took a dip for a bit because of some other news. But um, I, I they do have. I know, I know you hate this, but I, they do have some power in that sense because the market's always trying to front run the rates going down. And because of that mechanism, in a weird way, he, he can get people acting bullish again. And so if the economy starts sliding, even just hinting they're going to cut rates, what that tells the market is they're now that they're they're talking about cutting, they're done raising. So therefore, now is the time to front run the rate cuts. I don't disagree with you. I just disagree on the term the market. The market is made up of all 7 billion people on this planet and institutions, and some of them can participate in these trades you're talking about. Some of them can't. Some of them have to express these sentiments in other foreign markets with different constraints, different mechanics. And so it's just a much messier, less understandable process than mainstream reporting about economics and the economy would like us to believe. Should I refer to them as large capital allocators, the large capital allocators that are trying to front run the right cut? <laughs> I mean, you know what I'm saying is in market in this context is probably, you know, the big mucky mucks on Wall Street that have lots of money to move around, I would imagine. Definitely not me. Not on, not on this end of the market. But you do push those podcasts out. Woo! I'm pushing those bits over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And um, Coda Radio, oh man, the Coda Radio episode 549 uh, talks about this extremely clever bloke who figured out how to hack Magic the Gathering's online card game. 
and essentially for make make all the other players forfeit and cause him to win the game every time and thus the bag (laughs) and he just rakes in a bunch of money um and it's an interesting little approach because a card game and hacking a server card game turns out to be quite a bit different than like the first person type games or your roblox it's a totally different thing uh so that's episode 549 and then also over there we have episode 541 linux unplugged which recaps the big stories of 2023 in linux all over at my podcast network that's jupiterbroadcasting.com and for our christmas episode our education segment is bitcoin optech news ne- newsletter number 282 the 2023 year in review special and it goes through the year month by month with a summary of the bitcoin optech newsletters and developments from that month and if you just look at the timeline you can see that in february ordinals is first mentioned and then we have some rgb news music too some privacy with silent payments developments but it's basically all lightning <laughs> yeah it is yeah well there's uh yeah yeah wow yeah mm-hmm. i'm going through it it's interesting kind of as the year goes on it really gets kind of focused on that um you know i don't think of ordinals as a february thing but i guess it was I guess it was I thought of it more as a summer thing i guess that's when i started paying attention well i think february was when andrew palesta said there's no sensible way to prevent people from storing arbitrary data in witnesses without incentivizing even worse behavior and or breaking legitimate use cases. And this is kind of where the ordinals debate still is, which is, yes, from the perspective of most users, you are polluting the chain. Also, the cure is worse than the disease, because now we have to censor a certain type of Bitcoin use cases in order to prevent ordinals. So we're not going to do that. Therefore, we're stuck with ordinals. Maybe some of this lightning development you see kick off later in the year is because in July, they held a lightning developers meeting that covered a variety of topics, including reliable transaction confirmation at the base layer, taproot, and multi-sig two channels, uh, updating channel announcements, redundant overpayment, jamming mitigation proposals, which I believe we talked about a little bit, uh, simplifying a few things. Um, they had like, you know, basically powwows and, and meetings. And then you just look at the optech after that, and it's just development after development. And there were many soft fork proposals, a proposal for OpVault, which is an opcode that would specifically create Bitcoin vaults, a form of deep cold storage where when a transaction comes out of a vault, you can kind of claw the transaction back uh, if a waiting period doesn't expire. There are several covenant opcode soft fork proposals, including check template verify, check sig from stack, sig hash any prev out. And my sense from reading the newsletter and listening to discussions on this is that the next soft fork is likely to include a covenant opcode. And covenants enable encumbering a Bitcoin transaction with additional spending conditions. They do not enable a government covenant that allows the government to control how you spend your coins. That's much more easily done with a multi-sig than a covenant. So that's not really a risk. But these covenants would enable new protocols like coin pools, which might be a way for multiple users to share a UTXO and then also have lightning channels based on that UTXO, or for ARC, which was Barack's proposal to create a kind of uh, centralized layer two that does lightning-ish things and 
you can always withdraw from as long as you go online every so often. So Covenant seems to be the future, I think, of the next Bitcoin soft fork and on-chain development. And they can also tie into Lightning in interesting ways and improve Lightning functionality, improve the justice transaction model so that the Lightning security model is less based on game theory and more based on cryptography, which I think would be an improvement for all users. That would be a nice Christmas wish. You know, Dad, I was just reading through this Optech. Um, I'm going to kick them I'm going to kick them some sats this holiday season. They just crushed it this year. And then this summary must have taken forever to put together. Like really solid value and signal from uh, the creators of the Optech. Yeah, absolutely. Do they have a lightning split option? That might be a good split for the podcast. That would be awesome. We need to get more of these Bitcoin uh, type groups in on lightning and on the splits because there's several, several that I would like to throw in on the splits from time to time. I think it'd be great. The Optech would be a perfect example. Come on, guys, let us know. Shall we do the boost? It is indeed time for the boost, isn't it? Don't forget, you can also email us to BitcoinDataProtonMail.com or join our Matrix channel. But of course, we love those boosts. This is a value for value podcast. And we got folks out there like Bob B who send that recurring boost. And we got 10,000 sats. Thank you, Bob. And we got 10,000 sats from user 76-70814 using Fountain. Hasn't set their name yet. And they write, thank you for all the good episodes. My favorite so far are interviews with Waxwing and with Peter Todd. Keep up the good fight. Well, thank you so much for the boost. Those were great conversations. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to check in with uh, Waxwing in the future. Storyteller boosts in 10,000 sats has become one of my favorite shows. Merry Christmas. Well, Merry Christmas to you, too. Thank you. Well, thank you, Storyteller. Um, I noticed that both Storyteller and uh, User70 are using Fountain. I'd be curious to know what you guys think about the new Fountain update. I am blown away, blown away by the UI changes and improvements. I'm sure there'll be a few bugs. I mean, I just installed it last night and it's a 1.0. Uh, but I'd love to know, Storyteller and User70, what you guys think about that. Can Fountain import an OPML file? to i think that's how i got my podcast into fountain but i'm not positive i know it seems like such a simple thing you think all podcast clients would support that right <laughs> would you believe there's even a debate as to which format that should be and all that there's of course yeah but i think so but i'm not i'm not positive it fountain might have been the app where i just decided to start over from scratch one of the apps i did that and it was super refreshing and i just now i built up a new set i, I mean obviously the ones i always listened to i went and found but then i just built up, built up a new set too using fountain's discovery tool so it must have been fountain that i did uh, Halleck comes in with 10,000 sats, also using Fountain. I like the segment about getting paid in Bitcoin, he writes. I've always felt like the maxi community is all about getting paid in sats and then converting it to fiat. Since I have a fiat job, it always made sense to me to pay the bills first with fiat and then stack the sats with the rest. Yeah, Halleck, I agree. I agree. Um, like, uh, unless, unless you somehow were getting KYC freed sats directly from your employer, not one of those deals where they give you like an ACH or whatever it is where they do a direct deposit and then your service just converts it. But I'm talking straight up. It was never fiat to begin with. And maybe they send it to you over liquid. <laughs> yeah, just think of the two businesses in the world that can accommodate yeah. that payment <laughs> let's, flow. Let's start one. Let's start one. I'm just saying, then maybe it'd be worth it. Because, you know, uh, I've part of me, of course, would never actually do this because I have to interact with the real world and business. Uh, uh, but then there's this like version of me that loves the idea of just being as much off the grid as possible, not for any nefarious reasons, but just because I want it under my control. And I just like the idea. Thank you, Halleck. You got me dreaming. Appreciate the boost. Thanks so much. Bitcoin Focus sent in 3,000 sats with no message, but we appreciate the boost. And thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you, everybody who boosted. We got a few under, uh, you know, the cutoff to that just says happy holidays. 
holidays and all of that. And I know, I know what it feels like during the holidays to have work stress and financial stress and you're trying to get gifts for folks. Uh, so people that boost in during this time is a little extra appreciated. We, uh, we didn't stack a lot, but we appreciate every little sat we did. We got six boosters and we stacked 36,800 sats this week. Uh, thank you everybody also who streams. I've been looking at that more and more too. You can always stream sats and I've been looking at ways to measure that. And that number's actually been pretty impressive too. So if you'd like to boost in, you can get a podcast app at podcastapps.com. Fountain 1.0 just launched with Strike integration, so it's really easy to top off. Podverse has been going from strength to strength, recently doing an update that improved performance. And Castomatic is a top tier experience on iOS. You can also boost just by going to found, like looking for Bitcoin Dad on Fountain FM's website, and they have a QR code you can scan there. And anything that supports Lightning, you can boost from that. And then you don't have to switch app. Pretty nice. It's a nice, you still get to send a message. So you get your message read on the show and you support the production. If you got some value from an insight, some information, if it helps you think about how you're going to manage your stack, protect your family's wealth in the future, please consider sharing a little value back to the show with a boost. Thank you, everybody. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on December 22nd, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm recording remotely, as always, with... Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas and happy holidays, everybody. Thanks for joining See you next time.